Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. We all have competing impulses within us, vying for our attention and expression. But how do you know which ones to amplify and which to repress? How should we think of ourselves? Are we powerful and valuable creatures made in God's image or accidental byproducts of time plus chance plus matter? In order to live out authentic humanity, we need to grasp who we are and how God calls us to live. Only when we live in conformity with our designer and creator can we flourish and bring him glory. This is a sermon I shared at our winter youth camp in Rhode Island called, Which You Are You? What I want to talk to you about tonight and start our weekend off is this theme, Authentic, and asking the question, Which You Are You? And I was thinking about myself, and in 11th grade, I got a yearbook. Do you guys get yearbooks still? Nope. That's some of you know what I'm talking about. I had this Asian friend named Waiting Shu, and he wrote in my yearbook, and he said, "It's kind of like a typical Chinese statement. You have many facades." That's what he wrote in my yearbook, and I was just like, "What kind of thing is that to say to somebody?" But he was a wise Chinese man, so I figured I'd, I'd listen to him. I mean, what do I know, right? Looking back on it, you know, I did have a, a, a lot of different aspects to my personality. I was a wrestler. I was uh, somewhat of a meathead. I was on the varsity wrestling team. I put a lot of effort into training. I hung out with a lot of other jocks and uh, football players in particular, also in my high school, were wrestlers. And I wrestled all year, year round. I went to camps in the summer when it wasn't wrestling season. I mean, I really got into it. And... I also spent time with nerds. I was in AP math, I was in AP physics, I had good grades, I was proficient at coding from a young age, I taught myself how to program computers, I would make games in my graphing calculator, yes I was that kid, I made blackjack, I made tic-tac-toe, hangman, and that was another aspect of my personality. But my main friends, they were metalheads. They listened to Metallica, they watched MTV, they were the ones that would buy the pay-per-view professional wrestling event, and I would go to their house and watch that, and we circled up for hacky sack in between classes, and that was really my close group of friends. But I was also in the band, so I had played the piano when I was a kid, and then I learned the clarinet in, what, fourth grade, and then... I switched to the saxophone in junior high, and I, I, played, I played in the band all throughout, and I played in concerts. And then I also had a girlfriend, and that was a really big part of my high school career. I had this one steady girlfriend. Her name was Jamie, and uh, we dated for a couple of years, and you know that romance really defined who I was. And I spent a lot of time with her friends, and her friends were girls. And so it was a very strange set of conversations that they would be like I didn't really understand what they were talking about most of the time so I was kind of just like the random guy and then I went off to college and when I went to college I didn't I went to a school and I didn't know anyone 
at the school I went to. I went to SUNY New Paltz, State University of New York at New Paltz. And I could be whoever I wanted to be. I remember having this distinct feeling my first week at school, thinking to myself, I could pick any one of these facades and be that person. Or I could be somebody new. I could, be, I could just be a total nerd this whole time. Or I could just get into sports and be the sports guy. Or I could find a girl and be the guy that has a girlfriend, I guess. I don't know what you call that. The, uh, the lover boy. Or I could, I could join the music scene there, right? And grow my hair like Peter Fitzsimmons, right? And, and, and do that. You know, I, I could do all these different things. And I, I remember thinking to myself, I could create my own identity. I'm away from my friends. I'm away from my parents. I could be whoever I want to be. And you know what I chose to be? I chose to be a party animal and I failed out of school. So that, that really didn't work out well for me. And those of you who know my story know what I'm talking about. God redeemed me later. Thank, <laughs> thank God. But uh, what I want to talk to you about is who God says we are and authenticity. And I got this, this slogan from a commercial for some sort of skin medication on YouTube. And in the commercial, they said, which you are you? And they had this girl and is the same girl. And in one scene, she's wearing like an oversized sweater and jeans. And another one, she's wearing like a really trendy dress. And they're like, are you the kind of you that stays at home because you have this skin problem? Or are you the you that's out with your friends in this nice dress? And uh, I don't even really know what the commercial was about. But that, that question really got, which you are you? And you know what? You have to choose that for yourself. In fact, you're choosing that every day. Which you are you? There are many possibilities. You could go this way or you could go that way, right? And so from a very broad perspective, I believe there are two worldviews competing for your allegiance. And there are many subversions of these, but the first is what's called the Imago Dei. That's the image of God, it's Latin, it means the image of God. And that's the, what we find in creation in the book of Genesis. And the other one is that you're an accident, that we're all accidents, we're improbable accidents created by matter plus time plus chance. And so th those are, I, I believe, the two mega worldviews that are competing for your heart in our day and time. So let's look at the first one. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, look over there. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, that's the phrase, imago Dei. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, have lots of kids, rule the world, right? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Then verse 31 God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What we see in this account, now I don't have time to read all of chapter one with you right now, because I have a lot to say, and I'm really excited about it, and I think it matters. So let me just summarize. In chapter one, 
we see the creation of all sorts of things, from stars to the land to the sea creatures and people. The creation of the people from the perspective of Genesis chapter 1 is the crowning achievement. It's the cherry on top of the Sunday. In chapter 2, we get a little bit more detail. In chapter 2, we see that the way God made people is different than how he made animals in the sense that he was, he was intimately involved. He formed us and he shaped us. And then it says, he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. It doesn't say that about the animals, right? I mean, obviously there are similarities between humans and animals. I'm not denying that. But from a creation perspective, there is a significant difference. And he planted us a garden and put us there to live in harmony with our environment and to enjoy each other and his creation. And the first humans, we'll go over to Psalm 8. The first humans were naked and unashamed. They had no inhibitions. The first people were sin-free. They didn't have a concept of shame. They didn't have a concept of guilt. Everything was good, literally. And so they enjoyed that time in the original creation as God's masterpiece, as God's great crowning achievement. In, in Psalm 8, we learn in verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? This is the psalmist looking at the stars. You look at the stars, and they didn't even have telescopes like we have today. And yet, just with the naked eye, they were able to see the magnificence, the splendor, the grandeur, the power of the heavens, of the stars, of the planets, of the moon and the sun. And they said, considering all that you've made, God, what are people? What are humans? Why do you even, why do you even care about us? <laughs> Verse 5, yet, yet, you have made him a little lower than God or than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. God has made us a little lower than himself, a little lower also than the angels. God has made us just a little bit lower. We're made in his image, and we're made just a little bit lower, right? Obviously, God is immensely powerful, right? But we have power, but it's limited. And yet, Look at how it says you crown him with glory and majesty. From a biblical point of view, you are the pinnacle of God's creation, the one who is in God's image, who is crowned, who is crowned, kings and queens, right? Crowned with glory and majesty. That's a lot of value there. Verse 6, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then he goes through all these different animals here. However, what happened? We rebelled, didn't we? In the beginning, Adam and Eve, the, there was rebellion. And that rebellion wasn't limited to Adam and Eve. It, it spiraled downwards like the flush of a toilet. And it got worse and worse. And their first kids killed each other. And bloodshed, dysfunction. And then forget about it once we figured out how to kill each other in more creative and technologically advanced ways, like the invention of the machine gun or airplanes, Right? And now we're going to drop bombs on each other. And so what ends up happening is this systemic dysfunction and chaos, which is what we call the fall. So what the Bible teaches us is that God makes everything perfect in the beginning. Everything is good. He says it over and over again. And then our first parents rebelled. And that 
pattern of dysfunction passed down generation by generation as people continue to rebel. This worldview, the biblical worldview, or the creation worldview, recognizes both the good and the evil in our world. It sees the beauty of the sunset. It sees and embraces the fact that our world has God's fingerprints on it. That, there, that, that if, you, if you study the human eye, you're going to be impressed. If you look at a single cell amoeba in science class and you study all the little organelles interacting within it, forget about the DNA, you're going to be impressed, right? There is grandeur in our creation, but there's also a lot of evil in our creation. And why is there evil there? It's because of sin. It's because of this fall. And so the biblical worldview teaches us that we are incredibly powerful and valued in God's sight, but we're also fallen. And so as a result of that, you have two ways you can go. There are two voices in your head, so to speak. Uh, sometimes you see it like an angel and a little devil on your shoulders, right? And, and, you, can, and you can choose which way to go in, in different situations in life. Now let's look at the other worldview. The other worldview says that you are the accidental byproduct of time and chance that some proteins accidentally swirled around in a puddle and the first single-celled self-replicating organism emerged. Over time, organisms made mistakes in copying their genes, resulting in mutations. That's what a mutation is. It's a mistake. These mutations nearly always cause defects. Did you know that? When a mutation occurs, it's bad nearly all the time. But, according to this worldview, once in a while, something good happens. And that is where we get increased complexity and functionality. And so then, eventually we go from bugs and moss upwards through this evolutionary cycle until we get to fish and trees. So we got from bugs to fish. And then we got from uh, fish, then there's like this land fish that climbs out of the water and somehow turns into a chimpanzee and a human and primates. And bam, we get the chimpanzee. He looks just like my brother, actually. I, I can see why. No. <laughs> Which one? And bam, there we are. So that's where we are today. This worldview is very well summarized by William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig says, Man, writes Lauren Isley, is the cosmic orphan. He is the only creature in the universe who asks why. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions, Who am I? Man asks, why am I here? Where am I going? Since the Enlightenment, when he threw off the shackles of religion, man has tried to answer these questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating. So what William Lane Craig here is saying is, people, we're the only ones that are asking these sorts of questions. Your dog is not asking, why am I here? <laughs> they might be looking for food. Your cat might be saying, I could use some attention right now. But they're not, ask, they're not saying to themselves, What's my purpose? They're, they're not. That's you. And yet, if you take God out of the equation, the answers that come back to that question are not exhilarating. They're dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. That sounds really depressing, huh? 
This guy's a Christian, by the way. <laughs> if God does not exist, then both man and the universe are inevitably doomed to death. Man, like all biological organisms, must die. With no hope of immortality, man's life leads only to the grave. His life is but a spark in the infinite blackness, a spark that appears, flickers, and dies forever. Therefore, everyone must come face to face with what the theologian Paul Tillich has called the threat of non-being. For though I know that I exist, that I am alive, I also know that someday I will no longer exist, that I will no longer be, that I will die. This thought is staggering and threatening to think that the person I call myself will cease to exist and that I will be no more. Really uh, happy, cheery stuff here in this worldview of... Uh, what's called atheism or naturalism. And so if you buy this worldview of naturalism, the idea that there is no God, there are no spiritual beings, that you are the accidental byproduct of matter plus time plus chance, if you buy that worldview, what does it mean to live authentically? It means to act like an animal. Because in fact, you are an animal. And you're going to die. And even if you did something noteworthy, even if you did something, let's say Dakota does something so spectacular that it outshines. Who's the guy that made Rhode Island? Roger Williams. I was going to say William Rogers. Roger Williams. Let's say you, let's say you do something so spectacular with your life that Rhode Island recognizes Dakota Sanini in a higher manner than even Roger Williams. So that means there would be the Dakota Sanini Zoo and it would be bigger than the Roger Williams Zoo. There would be the Dakota Sanini Park and it would be even better with, with a better temple to music than they have in, in, the, in the one that exists now. And there would be a statue of you in Providence bigger and better than Roger Williams. Okay, let's say you were somehow able to achieve that level of notoriety in the great state of Rhode Island. Well, then you still die, eventually. I mean, Roger Williams died, pretty sure. And you know what else happens on this naturalistic worldview? Eventually, something funny happens to our son. Either it dies with a whimper or with a bang. Either way, all life in the solar system ceases to exist. But you know what? Our son's not special. All the other sons plan to die as well. And the total amount of usable energy in the universe is always running down. So eventually the universe will get to a point, what the scientists call heat death. And that's when everything is at the same temperature. And there's no more heat transfer. There's no more life anywhere in the universe where it will stay a cold, dead place forever. And no one, if your statue is still there, will be there to see it. Kind of a downer, that point of view, right? So how do you live authentically with that point of view? Well, you just do whatever feels good because it doesn't matter anyhow. You just look within yourself, find whatever sorts of impulses are there, and, and, and you, just, you just follow that path wherever it leads. And it's like, well, my life is ultimately meaningless, so let me just do whatever, whatever comes to mind, whatever I want to do. And if it hurts other people, well... That's their problem. Their life is meaningless too. 
But if you believe God made you, if you believe that you are the crowning achievement of God's creation, that you are valued, that you are crowned with glory and honor, that you are powerful and powerfully made in the image of God, what does that mean to live authentically? It means that you recognize the dignity God has put in you and you don't do things that are beneath your dignity, right? And you recognize the value of other people that God has put in them. If you want to find your true self, if you want to ask the question, who are you? I believe you're going to fall into, at least in America, the options are generally one of those two. Either you're going to conclude that life is ultimately meaningless, so let me just create my own fleeting purpose for my puny short life, or God has made me, I owe him everything, let me live for him. I think those are really the, the two main meta-worldview options that we have. The third, by the way, if you're curious, is that it's all an illusion and you have to detach yourself from it and look within to find the ultimate. I'll leave it at that. And that's more of like an Eastern perspective. I'm not going to get into that. But my, my point for you is, if you're going to ask yourself, who are you really? I don't want you to define yourself and find out in the end that you are living a lie. I don't want to live a lie. I want to live the true me. I want to be authentic. And so what, what do people do? They identify with their economic situation. They say, well, I'm wealthy, so I'm better than other people. Or they say, well, I'm poor, so you owe me. Or they say, well, I'm middle class, so I can relate to anybody. Right? And people identify based on their economic situation. They identify based on their ethnicity. Oh, I'm Irish. Don't you see the green shirt? Uh, or people identify with their sexuality. I'm straight. Oh, I'm gay. I'm trans, right? There, there's a, a whole idea of that's who you really are is your sexuality or your love of anime. And you're one of those people, whatever they're called. You're a Pokemon person. A what? A weeb. You're a weeb, right? Or, or maybe you identify with your intelligence or your job or your... Niche interests. You have this narrow set of things that interest you. And then there's, because the internet has so many billions of people on it, you can find a whole bunch of others that are narrowly focused on that little aspect of life that you also recognize as interesting. And you're, you're with that group. But the truth is that you were made in the image of God. The truth is that you are God's creation and that God wants you to come home to him. God wants you to be like the prodigal son in that story where he, he ran away and his life turned to terribly bad and then he came home to his father whose arms are open. And so which you are you? And you have to answer that question. Right now, you have to answer that question every day. Because there are so many forces, especially in your teenage years, there are so many forces that are trying to grab you and say, fight for us, fight for this cause, invest yourself here, do this, identify as one of us. And so you have to answer that question, which you are you? Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. I'm totally convinced that to be authentic doesn't mean I do whatever comes into my head. And I realize that might seem counterintuitive because you might think, well, isn't that precisely what authentic means? Authentic is just saying whatever comes to mind. Have you ever had this experience where you felt 
like you had two different uh, desires competing within you? Have you ever felt that? Yeah, I mean, it could be something like, I want to be fit. You know, January 1st is coming around. A lot of people are going to desire fitness and losing weight and getting really buff and going to the gym and that sort of thing, right? And then like January 10th comes around and you're sitting on the couch and inside you look within and there are two different voices. One says, let's go to the gym. We've gone for nine days. It's the 10th. Let's do it. We're going to be awesome. By the summertime, people are going to be paying us to take our shirts off because we're going to be so, I'm talking for the guys, we're going to be so muscular. Or for the ladies, I, I'm not even going to go there. But, and then there's another voice. And what's the other voice says? You've worked hard. Nine days. That's really good. Take a break. Get your potato chips. Get your potato chips. Relax. Let the potato chips dribble onto your clothing while you eat them on the couch and get stains all over your... Who cares? You worked hard. You deserve this, right? <laughs> have you ever felt like that where you have two different desires fighting it out within you? Sometimes there's more than two. Sometimes there's three or four different desires. Another desire maybe says, well, I should really do my homework instead of like fussing with the potato chips and the working out because school's my reality, right? And then another one's like, but then there's that cute guy down the road or that cute girl down the road. Maybe that's where I should focus my time, right? So we have all these desires fomenting within us. And the question is, which is you? Which you are you? What, is it, what does it mean to be authentic, right? And so Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You see that? Keep seeking the things that are above. Set your mind on the things above, verse 2, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. Whoa. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to Im immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. What this is saying is you need to recognize who you really are. You need to, and, and that's assuming, Colossians is assuming that you've made a decision to follow Christ. It's that, assuming that you've made a decision to believe that Jesus is the king, that he's coming back to establish the kingdom, that God raised him from the dead after he died for your sins. It's assuming all that. Okay, so I'm just going to assume that you're on board with all that. If you're not, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. But assuming you're on board with all that, there's a battle in the mind to set your mind on Christ and to set your mind on the reality that God says is coming to this world. And as a result of that, verse 5, you have to consider, you have to reckon, you have to calculate, you have to say to yourself that these old ways are dead. Immorality. That's a very tame translation. I mean, immorality, what does that mean? Your friend asks you, do you like my new haircut? And you're like, oh, it looks nice. And it's just a disaster. That's, I mean, that's not really what this word is. It's the Greek word pornea, whence we have the English word pornography. This is talking about sexual immorality. This is talking about 
the, the, these kinds of things that are done outside of marriage. Then you have impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Things like that. You, ha you have to put those things to death within yourself. This is what it means to be an authentic Christian. It means you wage this battle every day. It means that when the temptation comes into your mind, oh, maybe I'll just cheat over here a little bit, or maybe I'll lie about this, or, or maybe I'll go down um, out back and, and do some drugs with the uh, friends or whatever kind of temptation. I don't know what your temptation is. Maybe you're, maybe you're into pornography. I don't know. Whatever your temptation is, when that temptation comes into your head, you've got to kill it. That's what it means to be an authentic Christian. To be a fake Christian is to come on Sunday and not to kill it. Right? You come on Sunday, and then on Monday, you're out doing what God hates. That's a fake Christian. We don't want to be fake Christians. We want to be authentic Christians. And so to be an authentic Christian doesn't mean you just do whatever your inner voice is telling you what to do, because your inner voices are confusing. If they're anything like mine, they are. We need an outer voice. We need something outside of ourselves that can help us, like a compass. Look, if you're lost in the woods, and if you have a compass, you don't go in circles the whole time, right? Has anybody ever been lost in the woods and gone in a circle? I've done that before. And, and, and you think you made progress, and then you see that same tree or that same stump or, or rock or whatever, and you're like, I was here an hour ago, right? And if you have a, what's that? Two hours ago. And if, and if you have a compass, you don't go in circles. It's really great. And so what has is, what is, what is God given us? God has given us his scriptures. This book is like a compass that guides us, that helps us to know which voice within to listen to. And God's voice is really the voice we want overall, isn't it? All right, so then look at verse 6. First, because of these things these sorts of sinful activities, that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. And he's not done. Let's throw on some more. Anger, wrath, malice. Malice is wanting bad things to happen to other people. Slander, that's making fun of people. That's gossip, that sort of thing. Abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you will lay aside the old self with its evil practices. This is what Christianity, authentic Christianity is. It's laying aside the old self. You don't want to meet the old Sean Finnegan. He, he was a jerk. I laid aside the old self. I laid him aside. And I didn't take him back up. I mean, there are times when I'm not trying to say you never struggle and you're not tempted. But then in those times of temptation, and if you fail... What you do is you cry out to God, you ask for forgiveness, and then you put to death those things again. You put to death those things again, you lay aside the old self. That's not the true you. Verse 10, and have put on what? The new self. The new self. All right, Colossians 3.10. And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, not a false knowledge, a true knowledge according to... To what? The Imago Dei. The image of the one who created him. Look, there is a new self. There is a new you that you have to put on. You have to put off the old you and you have to put on the new you. And the new you is beautiful. The new you is powerful. The new you is valuable. 
It's that image that God is moving you towards that he originally created and has fallen, but now he's moving you towards it again through what Christ has done. Look at that verse 10 again. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, so your ethnicity doesn't define you. Circumcision and uncircumcision, whether you're practicing the Jewish law, does not define you. Barbarian, Scythian, that barbarian is like uh, old school for Irish. Uh, barbarian, Scythian, <laughs> slave, freeman, how much money you have, your status, it does not define you. That's not who you are. But Christ is all and in all. So also those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, now it goes through all the things, we talked about the things to put away, to kill off. Now we're talking about all the things to put on, to bring to life, right? What are these things? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Mm. And be thankful. So the question is, which you are you? Look within your heart. Think about it. When you look within your heart, what do you see there? You see these different desires. Here's the problem. The problem is you think that you're deciding which impulses you should amplify, you should pursue, and which ones you should say, well, I'm going to repress that. You ever have an impulse? You ever see somebody that's just like, you ever, you ever like have a, a friend or, or somebody at school that's just so annoying? Yeah. Like you just can't stand them. Yeah. And they come up and maybe they humiliate you publicly. You know what desire you have in that situation? Punch them in the face. To punch him in the face. Thank you, Dakota. So this is an authentic answer right here. Very honest answer, right? Uh, I, has anybody ever gone to uh, uh, like a Starbucks or a... Uh, some, some sort of like convenience store or whatever, and you're on a line, and, and, you, and you're standing there on a line, and there's only like one, maybe two people in front of you, and it's taking forever. Try being the guy behind the line. Seriously, <laughs> forever. And it's because the person in front of you has never been to a Starbucks before. They're the one person in the whole country that's never had a cup of coffee in their whole lives. And what are they doing? They're like, well... I want to get a small. And the, and the barista's like, tall, grande, venti. They're like, well, I want a, um, whatchamacallit. We don't sell that, sir. Look at the menu. And, and you know what my natural impulse is in that situation? Not to punch him in the face. It, it, is, it is to take a cajon and hit him in the face with it. No, it's, it's, it's nothing righteous, right? It's frustration. It's to say to them in a thick New York accent, why don't you go somewhere else where you understand what the options are? That's my, that's my temptation, to say something like that. Like, go to the gas station. You're not qualified here, Okay. That's what, you, that's what, you ever feel that way? It's an authentic accent. <laughs> that's, that's how we feel. But you know what I do? Same thing you do, Marcella. I suppress that. I say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go nuts on this person. I'm just going to stand here. 
in through the nose, <laughs> out through the mouth, right? That's what we do. We do that, right? And if you don't do that, you know what happens to you? You probably end up in jail. If you just do whatever comes to mind, whenever it comes to mind, especially the punch in the face thing, then you're going to jail. We have places for people like you. So anyhow, you when, you see, when you see these desires within yourself, you have to ask yourself the question, which should I amplify, which should I pursue, and which should I tamp down? Which should I repress? Because that is going to land me in jail. Okay? And so, you know the true answer as to which ones you desire and which ones you deny? The true force in your life is your culture. Your culture is constantly shaping you. Unless you're a Bible person, unless you're reading this book, like seriously reading this book on your own because you want to know what it says. If you're not doing that, you know what's defining your sense of what's normal? It's the culture. It's your friends. It's the TV shows you watch. It's the video games you play. It's the social media you consume, right? That's what's defining what your sense of normal is. This is a phenomenal observation by Tim Keller. He says, imagine an ancient British warrior from a long time ago. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. This is the year 800, right? He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that, he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He will look at the aggression and think, this is not who I want to be, and will seek deliverance and therapy and anger management programs. He will look at the sexual desire, however, and conclude, that is who I am. And so what's determining which impulses we pursue? It's our culture. Right? And what I'm suggesting to you here is that our culture is not reliable because our culture is like an ocean with waves and winds going this way and that. And the culture, by the time you have children, it'll be totally different. And by the time they have children, it'll be totally different again. Right? So you can't use that as a reliable guide to how to live. What is a reliable guide? What has stood the test of time? This book right here. What God has given us has stood the test of time. Thousands of years. This is an ancient text. It's not American. It's not written by white people. It's not written in the 21st century. This is a Jewish text written by Middle Easterners. The people that wear turbans on their heads. They're the ones that wrote this book. Those are the ones that God worked with to give us this revelation. I mean, maybe not everyone had a turban on their head. I don't know. My point is, this, this is an interesting book worth your time and consideration. And so when I, when I think about authenticity, I think to myself, who is authentic? Is it Bruce Jenner? Is, is he authentic? He, he looks within himself and he sees the desire to become a woman. And so he has surgery and Bruce becomes Caitlin. And the whole world celebrates this transformation of Bruce to Caitlin because he followed his passions wherever they led her. Okay? And then, what about Donald? 
Is Donald Trump authentic? Let me tell you something. We live in the age of authenticity. We already knew that before Trump came. We already knew that. But when he won, it was like the ultimate sealing of the deal. What do people want over anything else? Authenticity. That's what they want. And here's somebody who ran on a platform of authenticity. Did Clinton run on a platform of authenticity? No. She ran on a platform of competency. Oh, I've been doing this job for so many years. He, and he ran on a platform of, I say what I think. And he won. But I, I guess I want to argue that Bruce and Donald, you know, I know that people say they're authentic, but I don't really think either of them are authentic. I think this guy's authentic. And I, I don't think you've ever heard of him. His name is Christopher Yuan. He was not raised in a Christian home, and he had a secret that he kept to himself through high school, through college. He even went to the Marine Corps Reserves, and he kept it a secret until he went to grad school at the University of Louisville to get a doctorate in dentistry. He was going to become a dentist. And that's when he came out of the closet as gay. And so Christopher told his parents they weren't Christian. Uh, They're from China. He was first-generation American. And they were very confused hearing that their son was gay. They were very disappointed and very angry at him for being gay. And his mother, in particular, uh, just couldn't love him anymore because she felt betrayed. And so let's just say the relationship was really broken. It was broken. And so then his mother starts doing all this research on homosexuality because her son is a homosexual. And she comes across this pamphlet. And hidden in the pamphlet is a presentation of the gospel message. Would you know it? The pamphlet about homosexuality was really a gospel tract. And she became a Christian on the basis of a homosexuality gospel tract. (laughs) I have no idea what this tract said, but it worked. She converted, and her heart changed towards her son. Before she couldn't love a gay son, now that she was a Christian, all she could do was love him. And his dad also became a Christian as a result of this. Meanwhile, Christopher himself led a double life. I told you he was going to school to become a dentist, right? And during the date, I I imagine that's pretty hard. I don't know what's entailed in that. But I imagine there's a lot of hours of homework and study and tests and that sort of thing, right? (coughs) However, at night, he was a different man. He He was a man out on the town at night. By day, he was getting a doctorate. At night, he went to gay bars. He did drugs. And he had sex with lots of strangers. He didn't have very much money as a college student, so living a party lifestyle was very difficult. So he decided to start selling drugs to friends, fellow students, even a professor at his school he was selling drugs to. He continued living this double life until three months from getting his doctorate, he got busted and they expelled him, kicked him out of dentistry school. And let me tell you something, if you get expelled from a grad school, you're finished. Nobody else is going to take you. So what did he decide to do? He said, well, I got kicked out of school. Let's just do the party thing full time. 
And so he moved down to Atlanta, to the big city, and he immediately embraced his gay-slash-drug-slash-party lifestyle. He became a supplier of drugs. And he was a dealer for over a dozen states around Atlanta's and Georgia. So all around that area, he was a main drug supplier for them. He says that it was normal for him in those days to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters every day. Every day. That was normal. His parents were totally clueless about the drugs and, and the, the, all the sex and all the rest of that. And they just prayed for him. And they prayed for him. And then they came to visit him in Atlanta. And they were only there for two days before he kicked them out. He just couldn't stand his parents. And they weren't even preaching to him. They were just transformed. They were just different people now that they were Christians. And he couldn't stand it. And his dad left a Bible on the counter on his way out and then left. As soon as he left, Christopher threw the Bible in the garbage. And... At that point, his parents knew that he was hopelessly lost. He was just so far out there that there was nothing that they could do as parents to bring him back. I mean, they just, he literally just kicked his own parents out. What did his mother do? She got a hundred people together, what are called prayer warriors, people that commit to pray for him. And she started praying for her son, not just by herself, but with, with all these other people in on it, that they would also pray for him. She cried out to God for him. And she prayed a specific prayer that God would do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to him. She fasted every Monday for seven years. Dedication. That's commitment. Every Monday, she didn't eat food. Because she was so focused on praying for her lost son. Once she fasted, not three days, not five days, not even a week, but 39 days, no food, fasting for this boy. 39 days she fasted for him. She spent hours every morning on her knees crying out to God. She knew that to get him back, it would take a miracle. Because people like him in that party lifestyle, selling the dr I mean, his whole life is wrapped up in this persona. It would take a miracle. And then one day, Christopher got a knock at the door. And there were 12 drug enforcement agents and Atlanta police and two big German shepherds that barged in. And he had all his drugs right out in the open and all his money. And they took all his drugs and they confiscated all his money. And they charged him with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. In pounds, that's 18,200 pounds of marijuana. That's a distributor. That's not like a little guy out on the street corner. That's a distributor. <laughs> the sentence, they told him, would be 10 years to life for this level of crime. So he was brought to jail and he called home. First time in years. Like I said, she's been praying seven years. She had not been eating on Mondays for seven years. He calls home, and the first thing his mother asks him is, are you okay? Because she knew something must be wrong if he's calling home. And he told her what happened, and uh, she knew, as bad as it was, this had to be, somehow or other, 
an answer to her prayers. God, do whatever it takes to bring him to you. And so he went to prison. And, uh, you know, this guy, he's not, he's from an upper middle class family in Chicago. His dad has not one PhD, but two. He was three months away from getting his own PhD. I mean, he goes from the high uh, level of society to the, to the most despised people in the world, the people in the penitentiary system. One day he got called in by the nurse. I wanted to see him. He knew it wasn't going to be good. And she brought him in and she struggled with words. She couldn't really say, you know, he, he, she wouldn't look at him in the eye. And she wrote on a piece of paper three letters and a symbol. And he opened it and he couldn't believe it. It said HIV positive. And he felt like he had received a death sentence. He felt utterly helpless. And he got sentenced to six years in prison. Prison is a tough place, you know, because you've got all this time and nothing to do. And the company's not so great either. One day after two years, he's walking by a garbage can, heaped up with all this garbage, and something catches him out of the corner of his eye. And there's a little Gideon New Testament on the top of the trash pile. And he's like, oh. And he grabs it. And it goes back to his room, or to his cell. And he reads the Gospel of Mark, start to finish. He reads the whole Gospel of Mark. He starts thinking about Jesus. And a work starts happening with him. He starts changing a little bit gradually. And within a few months, he actually got over his drugs. Because I don't know if you know this, but in prison, you can, you can retain your drug addiction. <laughs> it's not like uh, there are no drugs in prison. And he was able to conquer that. And then he, said, he started to think about his sexuality. And he's like, well, I can't let go of my sexuality. This is who, this is who I am. And so he went to the prison chaplain and asked him, chaplain, what does the Bible say what does it say about homosexuality, chaplain? What does it say? And the chaplain says, oh, the Bible says that's fine. Don't worry about it. You can, you can practice homosexuality. And he gave him a book written by a Christian that says the Bible's okay with homosexuality. Christopher was pretty intrigued at this point. And so he went back to his cell. And you have to understand, this guy, does he look dumb to you? I mean, he's, he's a researcher. He's a smart person. So what does he do? He doesn't just, like, accept whatever this book says. He's got the Bible in one hand and this book in another. And look, he has every reason to accept what the book is saying. He, he, want, he is a homosexual. He likes homosexual behavior. I mean, that's, that's who he is. And yet, he's comparing this book against what the Bible says and he, he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. He says, this book is wrong. This book is, is taking things out of context, is interpreting it differently than what it says right here. And so he gave it back to the chaplain. And at that point, he dove into the scriptures. He, and not just the New Testament. He dove into the whole book right here. And he started reading it, devouring it, verse by verse, by chapter, by book. And he read the whole thing all the way through. Several times. Did I mention you have a lot of time in prison? So he reads it through several times. And what he's looking for is any pro-homosexuality passages. Just, just wants to find one little bit there that says he can retain his homosexual expression. And then he finally got to a place, after reading the Bible all the way through several times, where he said either he had to abandon God and pursue gay relationships, allowing his desire to control him, or 
abandoned pursuing a gay relationship and liberating himself from his desire to live for God. Those are his words. And so he chose abstinence. He chose to remain single. This is after two years of prison. He's having this whole transformation, right? And what ends up happening is the days turn into weeks and months. And he started to say to himself, my sexual attraction does not define me. Whether I'm attracted to the opposite sex or the same sex, that doesn't tell me who I am. That doesn't define me. And he became a full Christian. He accepted what Christ did for him. He, he accepted God's forgiveness from his sins. He repented of his drugs, of his homosexual behavior, the, all those things we read about earlier. He repented. He changed his life. He became a whole new person in jail with HIV. And he felt called to go into ministry. And he wasn't sure how to do that, being that he has all these years left in jail. And so he, he asked his parents, he says, he calls collect to his parents, he says, Mom, I'd like to go into ministry. Can you send me an application to Moody Bible Institute, which is a well-known Bible college in Chicago, and I want to fill it out. And the application says, you need three references that know that you have been a Christian for at least a year. At this point, Christopher had been a Christian for exactly one year. And pickings were slim. So <laughs> he asked the chaplain, a guard, and an inmate to write his three references. And he sent him off to Chicago to the Moody Bible Institute and they sent back a letter saying, you're accepted. And then something unbelievable happened. Out of nowhere, something that almost never happens in the federal justice system, they commuted his sentence from six years to three years. Out of nowhere. There was no extra trial or anything. They just, they're like, let's let this guy out. And uh, and this is pre-Obama, so if you're thinking Obama has something to do with it, it wasn't related to him like cracking down on uh, nonviolent uh, drug cases. This was in 2001. It was July 2001 when he got out of jail, and August when he started college at the Moody Bible Institute. And you can you imagine when the students were milling around before the classes started, and they talked to each other and say, "Well, what'd you do this summer?" To Christopher. It's like, well, I was in the federal penitentiary. Been there for three years. Got charged with having the street equivalent of nine tons of marijuana. I mean, I don't know. What, where do you want me to start? <laughs> I'm here now. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and uh, so he started going to school. And he, 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 he got a bachelor's in 2005. Then he went and did a master's degree in biblical exegesis at Wheaton College. Then he went for the doctorate. And wouldn't you know it, he finally became Dr. Christopher Yuan in the end, but his PhD was not in dentistry, but in Bible. And he wrote a book with his mother recently called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. And now he's a teacher at the Moody Bible Institute, teaching Bible. He went from prisoner to professor. He says, according to himself, you look him up on YouTube, there's plenty of testimonies of him talking. He says that he's happy, he's well-adjusted, he has a sense of purpose. And you're going to tell me that he's inauthentic? You're going to tell me that he's denying who he really is? I don't think so. I don't think he's inauthentic. I think he's the real McCoy. I think he's a hero. You know why? Because he has the courage to say, I'm not going to gratify myself if it goes against what God says is right. 
I'm going to choose, and, and if necessary, I will choose singleness over against doing something that God says is wrong. And you know what? He's, and th- look, I don't know anything about this. This is, this is his story, okay? He says he's free. This guy doesn't look free to me. He might be saying what's on his mind, but he does not look free to me. He does. He's free. And so, to conclude, which you are you? Which you do you want to be? What authenticity do you want to tap into? The image of God or just like what everybody else is doing? In conclusion, only in Scripture do we find, this is Kenneth Boa, only in Scripture do we find definitive answers to the questions, where do we come from, why are we here, where are we going? Without these answers, we cannot arrive at authentic identity because an understanding of the true self must be shaped by the truth of our condition. I want you to say with me, I am a child of God. Would you do that? Let's say it together. I am a child of God. That's who you really are. You are made in the image of God. You are, if you choose to be, you are a child of God. If God is your father, everything else is subject to that. That trumps everything else. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to be authentic. Help us to choose the version of us that brings you glory, that makes sense in light of who you are. We pray for your help and your blessing on us tonight in this time together that we have so that we can press into you and live out our our faith authentically. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Before wrapping up, I just wanted to read out a couple of quick comments from interview number 15, Healing from Abuse and Abandonment with Claudia Scott. This is the story of Claudia's life and the various kinds of suffering she endured and then how God eventually brought healing into her life. Brian writes, Thanks for interviewing and sharing this one. I really enjoy hearing these life stories and how God interacts. Miranda says, thank you, Claudia, for your encouraging story. Sad to listen to in places, but a wonderful outcome. We could take comfort from the fact that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And I encourage you, if you haven't yet listened to that interview, it really is quite an account of what the world was like, especially before Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement, as well as how someone is able to get healing from years of trauma and suffering and how she's able to have the rest for her soul that she so wanted. And so I think it's just a really great testimony. It gives glory to God and it is something that is definitely worth sharing as well if you know somebody else who has suffered any kind of abuse in the past that they could be encouraged by hearing Claudia's story. If you haven't already done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast in your phone or tablet, and this way you can get episodes automatically downloaded when they come out. And check us out online at restitudio.org where you can leave comments and you can access an archive of all our past shows. We have over 100 shows up there now, and you can also read articles on certain biblical topics. So check that out, and I hope to see you next time, and remember the truth has nothing to fear.